We don't do this every week, but from time to time we do. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read it this morning. If ever a passage of scripture is worthy of that, it is this one. Though we don't want to suggest by that to elevate it above the rest. But we're in some special territory here. Listen to the word of God. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne was burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed. And were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. Or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We were made by God to enjoy scenes of awe and wonder, splendor and majesty. Sometimes when Gene and I have seen people pull off the road during heavy rains while we're traveling, but far more often when we see people pull over, and we've seen it again recently, it's to view some kind of spectacular display. Often it's a sunset or a rainbow forming or an unanticipated fireworks display. That's where I've seen it more recently. Cars stopping along the expressway to watch fireworks. We can't help ourselves. We were made to enjoy awesome beauty and splendor. Striking visual images, full of color, shining brightly. We're drawn to that. But you know, it's it's more than that. We weren't just made to appreciate views like that, images like that. We were made to worship. We celebrate it in the catechism, the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We are worshiping creatures. We were made for that purpose. We can't help ourselves with regard to worship. We will worship something. 
in the absence of anything truly worthy of worship, we'll opt for the most enthralling thing available. Sometimes a sunset, sometimes a fireworks display. But sometimes it goes farther than that. Sometimes it's athletics, just amazing accomplishments in sports. Or music and the arts. Sometimes it's, it's gardens, you know, cultivated and trimmed and shaped or... Maybe it's clothing or artwork or travel to exotic places. We're made to worship something and in the absence of truly something truly worthy, anything we really value will do. But if our soul isn't worshiping something, our life just seems to lack meaning. It lacks significance. It lacks satisfaction on what we perceive as the deepest of levels. And that is a true experience. Scripture has much to say about what draws our worship. And worship spaces are designed with those things in mind. In other travels that Gene and I have enjoyed together, we viewed some pretty striking worship facilities. A number of different places. Sanctuaries, some of them old, some of them new, that seem to draw forth worship by their mere architecture or by their interior design or by their acoustic or, or, or by their appointments. Vaulted ceilings, stained glass windows, massive pipe organs, elevated pulpits. Setting has much to do with the facilitation of worship. And no one needs to be convinced of that. We see it when we walk into a place. And we know it when we see it. And we often miss it when it's absent. But I think even there we could also grant that architecture and design and acoustics, even of worship spaces, can be worshipped in their own right. Like sports and gardens and art. Rather than for pointing to the God whose person and work all of those things were designed to reflect. We can begin worshiping the thing that we have done to strengthen our worship. That's our tendency. For instance, we can see ornate temples right here in our own area. And can be drawn in by their beauty. And that's what we would oftentimes call it. Even though they're built to facilitate worship of false gods. We don't often stop to name what draws us to those places or to identify whether it's a good or bad thing that we are drawn to them. I think we just assume that it's due to some inherent beauty in such structures, forgetting that we are vulnerable and can also be drawn to strangely grotesque things as well. And that it's important for us to know the difference between the two. 
Gaper's blocks that serious car accidents are all the reminder we need of that tendency of our flesh to gape at things that are grotesque. My friends, this is just set up. It's just establishing some categories to recognize the nature of the human heart, what we're drawn to and why, and the fact that it matters, where it's aimed, and what it's accomplishing, not only in and of itself, but in our own hearts as we engage with it. All of this works together to help us understand what is so special about our passage here today. And why we end up taking this singular passage of Revelation 4 and 5 in two parts rather than one. At the beginning of the week, in fact, in last Sunday's bulletin, it was set here as one piece, Revelation 4 and 5. I was challenged by the preaching team this past week to consider dividing this in half, and I stood my ground firm until Thursday. <laughs> And that's when I decided, you know what, I've always preached this as a unit. I've never preached Revelation 4 by itself. Revelation 4 is to Revelation 5 as a setting is to a stage play or a movie. So we're just going to look at the setting today. We're going to drink in this scene and we're going to soak in it for a bit. In fact, I would like us to soak in it for this week that's ahead. And I'll say more about that toward the end. And then we will wait until next Sunday, God willing, to hear the director say action in this scene. And see what takes place in this place that's been described. Today's passage depicts the ultimate worship scene in all the universe, through all time, that's why it can overwhelm us. This passage depicts the ultimate worship scene that we have been created to appreciate and to engage in. This is the ultimate worship space, Revelation 4. And we can hear in the writing that John wrestles to put it in words. But I'm sure he gained reassurance in his descriptions as he recognized their similarity to the descriptions of other Old Testament prophets. And we'll dig into that in just a few minutes. But the main thing that makes their description so compelling is the fact that God himself is present here. He was present in the temple behind a curtain hovering as light over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. So he was present among his people. He was present and visible in the pillar of cloud that led them by day and the pillar of fire by night. He was present as he descended and the, the cloud so filled the temple when the temple of Solomon was dedicated that the service had to stop because it couldn't continue. The visible presence of God has been manifest, but 
This is special. This is beyond that. This is the eternal throne of God. This is the scene from which all of our earthly worship spaces have been drawn. It's the place in heaven, the direct, unshielded presence of God. God himself is here. This whole passage is intended to do two things. First, more broadly, it's intended to strengthen believers, to to stoke their confidence that God is indeed worthy of their worship, worthy of their praise, worthy of their endurance and sacrificial obedience, even if it feels very costly to offer it in any given circumstances. He's, He's worthy of our worship and our obedience and our endurance. That's the very title of our series. And second, this passage is intended to set up his people, to set up John's readers, to set us up to see and to hear what happens over the next 15 chapters in this book without losing confidence that he's in control of it all and is fully able to steer this train to its final destination of perfect holiness. That's what we see here. On the heels of the letters to the seven churches, especially finishing with Laodicea, we could have our doubts about whether God is able to actually bring about that which he's promised. But following John into the scene here into which he's invited In chapter 4, verse 1, following John into this scene chases away all of that doubt immediately. And that's precisely what it's intended to do. So each of these two chapters has a discernible theme. You see them listed for you in the bulletin. This is not going to be two messages. It's going to be one message in two parts. So this is still the outline we're going to follow. We're just only going to do point number one today. A vision of the indescribable majesty of God in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And we'll leave for next Sunday, God willing, what happened in the glorious presence of God, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. So we're not even going to re-outline this. This is just one long sermon done in two parts, right? If I had preached it as one part, we very well may not have dismissed until next Sunday. But... uh, In this particular approach, you'll have the week off in between, all right? So let's look into this chapter 4, a vision of the indescribable majesty of God, and there's the title that I would hang over this chapter. That's what John is seeing, a vision of the indescribable majesty of God. And John just stacked up similes and metaphors to convey this majesty that's all he had available to him. He could only compare it to things. How do you describe what you're seeing? The voice he heard, Jesus' voice, if we look back to chapter 1, verses 10 and following, this voice like a trumpet is the voice of Jesus, the voice he heard before in chapter 1. But it's like a trumpet. Reminding us of the trumpet sound atop Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. Exodus 19. 
Verse 3, he sat, and he who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Verse 6, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The first living creature, verse 7, was like a lion. The second, like an ox, and so on and so forth. Stacking up similes and metaphors to try to give some impression of what he was seeing. John had stepped into the presence of God. And his words just failed him. But almost certainly, as we said just a few moments ago, he was steadied a bit by the writings of Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah. I, I would love to have known what John was thinking could it have been, this is what they saw. Can you imagine? You've read the prophets through your life, and all of a sudden, a voice like a trumpet says, come here, I'm going to show you something. And you step into the place that is at once overwhelmingly strange and at the same time indescribably familiar because of the reliable truthfulness of the Word of God. Being taken into God's confidence and called into His presence was part of the commissioning of a prophet, and John was now part of that company. Ezekiel gives the exact date of his commissioning in the first three verses of his prophecy, and then listen to what he saw next. We're going to look at Ezekiel and then Daniel and then Isaiah, and we're just going to leave this slide up here because you can jot down these passages. These are the verses that I'm going to read right now. So just sit back and listen and enjoy and jot them down if you want to read through them again later because there are some sections that I'm leaving out, not because they're unimportant, but because we're just reading the portions that probably John found helpful as he answered the call on this particular day. Ezekiel wrote in chapter 1, verse 4, as I looked, behold, and by the way, this is on page 692 in your Bible, if you want to follow along as I read in your pew Bible. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness all around it. Think of what happens when a light is shining behind a cloud, right? Blinding white. A great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. So something brighter within the bright. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings and on their four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings. Thus, the wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, and the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which 
touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Whenever the Spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Jump ahead to verse 28. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Here in Ezekiel as well, similes and metaphors abound. Flashing of light and color. An overwhelming imagery. Isaiah's commissioning may be one that we most closely identify with Revelation 4 primarily because of the familiar hymn of the seraphim. This is on page 571 in your pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. That's Isaiah's rendering. Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Beginning at the bottom of page 744 in your pew Bible. Daniel's vision has more in common with the whole of Revelation 4 and 5 than either of these other two passages. So we're going to read an extended portion of him. Beginning in verse 9 of Daniel 7. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions in my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. 
These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But, verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Forever and ever. Verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Amen? What a glorious picture of the presence and purpose of God. This is the very point in what John is observing. God's purpose in this universe shall be realized. Both in judgment and in blessing. After the letters to the churches, we could really wonder. He makes such grand promises in those letters. But in the midst of significant suffering, here and now, how can we know that his eternal promises are true? If he doesn't keep us from suffering here and now, how do we trust him with eternity? That's a very important question. And the answer comes in Revelation 4 and 5. This is why. This is how. These two chapters show us who's in charge and how and why. It's a throne room and the king is in residence. But the one on the throne is not like any king we have ever seen. And that's what makes him believable. Verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Jasper was either an opal or a diamond. Refracts light, which means what? It throws rainbows. And this is the description of the one who was seated on the throne. Carnelian was a red gem from Sardis. That's why King James calls it sardine. It wasn't a fish head. It was a stone from a particular location. These stones themselves anticipate the holy city at the end of the story. Both are among the 12 jewels that adorn the foundation of the city wall in chapter 21, verses 19 and 20. The rainbow here recalls Ezekiel directly. Chapter 1, verse 28, most likely it's simply an image of beauty. Sevenfold color. And by the way, 3 and 4 and 7 and 10 and 12 and their multiples are numbers of completeness in apocalyptic literature. They have varying emphases and you'll see them as you move past them in the text. We'll draw attention to a couple of them this week and next. 
right here in these passages. But also when you see something like a rainbow, it's light, it's beauty, it's color, but it's sevenfold color. It's the full spectrum and the rainbow tends to do the same thing that the number seven does when it appears. And by the way, Paul Rupsis met me at the door last Sunday and said, weren't there seven churches? I had made the statement that there wasn't a literal number in Revelation, and it's like, yeah, there actually are seven churches. So the point isn't that they're not literal. <laughs> the point is that in addition to being literal at times, there are symbolic meanings, and on that we agreed at the door as well. Seven churches, but they're seven because it's the fullness of the church. These numbers are important. They're not important to go either or. They're important to go both and because they're there to communicate something. And oftentimes, it's something just beyond the particular number of items present. The seven spirits of God, for instance. It's not seven there. It's one. It's very importantly one, the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that in just a moment. But anyway, three, four, seven, ten, twelve, and their multiples are numbers of completeness, and they have varying emphases that the context will help us see, and we'll see them often. Different elements then here in this description add different impressions as we move through them. 24 thrones, verse 4, likely represents the Old Testament and New Testament people of God as a unit, reigning with Him. Jesus talked to His disciples about their place in heaven. And these are clothed in white garments. That's the entire of the redeemed. We'll see that right here in chapter, we saw it in chapter 3. We'll see it again in chapter 6, chapter 7. That's what the redeemed wear. That's what makes us consider, in addition to the number, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what helps us see these as the Old and New Testament people of God. The flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. By the way, a threefold grouping. Flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And you may think, isn't that stretching it a bit? Because maybe it's just two, lightning and thunder. But this same description comes up again. These came from the throne here in verse 5, and they depict... I believe, the supreme power of God. But this same wording then returns with the seventh seal in chapter 8, the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, and the seventh bowl in chapter 16. The same description showing that these judgments also came from the throne as manifestations of the supreme power of God. It's a threefold grouping of a description in those places. The seven torches of fire here that we just mentioned, which are the seven spirits of God, we're told explicitly here in verse 5, likely represent the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit in all of its fullness is a sevenfold spirit, not because there are seven spirits of God, but because seven is the number of completeness. And the sea of glass, verse 6, makes God unapproachable. Magnifying his transcendence, his apartness, his holiness that Nick referred to already this morning. The first characteristic of the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, no more sea. Isn't that beautiful? No more sea. Not diminishing his holiness, 
But just emphasizing the fact that even though he's a holy God, nothing separates us from him any longer. Continuing on, Ezekiel spoke of poor living creatures. We just read that in chapter 1 of his prophecy, each having the face of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. John sees them here as individual beings, the highest order of creatures in that they surround the throne, and some suggest that they even make up the throne. It's a living throne. Perhaps. But they're the inner circle. And yet, even so, they know their place. They're worshiping. Unceasing repetition of the highest affirmation of God's uniqueness and purity, of His Godness. He's holy, holy, holy. In apocalyptic, such creatures as these identify certain characteristics. The lion is usually reflective of royalty. The ox, strength. The man, intelligence, God's image bearer. And the eagle, likely compassion. From Deuteronomy 32, that's a point of reference. Verses 11 and 12, I think that's on your slide. But these characterize God's throne, His reign, royalty, strength, intelligence, compassion. We could spend much time exploring all the images like this. But our primary aim today and next Sunday is to see how this section works, to see what it contributes, to hear this passage in context. And this vision of the indescribable majesty of God centers on his glorious throne. It sets up and supports all the remaining visions of this letter, showing us a God who is not only capable of bringing them about, but is also worthy of doing so. He's worthy to do just what he says he will do in the chapters that follow. Sitting here right now this morning, that might not bother us, but just a little taste of what's coming. This description in chapter 4 and chapter 5 allows us to read of locusts from hell, stinging people like scorpions in chapter 9. Or every living thing dying that is in the sea in chapter 16. Or 100-pound hailstones falling from heaven on people later in chapter 16. This vision prepares us to see all of this and more of the outpouring of God's wrath and yet still say with the angel right there in chapter 16, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. These chapters allow us to respond with the altar in that same text and say, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We need chapters 4 and 5 to be ready. 
for chapter 6 through 20. Chapter 4 then finishes with the 24 elders echoing the four living creatures with a second hymn of worship here in this text. The latter part of verse 10, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. A threefold expression. A sevenfold will come in the next chapter. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This God is worshipped because he is worthy. He's worthier to receive glory and honor and power because he made it all. And it reflects his will that we are even here. It surely reflects his will that we are still here after having rebelled against his authority and his reign. This really reminds us of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does whatever he wants. And he wants only what is good and right and true. And he can bring it about. That's the God we serve. That's the God we meet in Revelation 4. Now here, folks, the temptation is so great to press on into chapter 5. These two really do operate as a unit. But it seems best for us to stop here this week and just, just soak for a while in Revelation chapter 4. This is just such a full and rich, concentrated and condensed depiction of life right now in the unshielded presence of God. You realize this is happening right now, the eternal present before God. And it will be added to as the purposes of God and salvation and blessing are brought to a culmination. But this worship scene is present. It's after this for John. It's after this for us. It's after this according to the flow of the book of Revelation. Yet it's present before God right now. This description needs to be emblazoned in our minds. This description needs to capture our imaginations. We need to hold on to it as the best picture we have of the God we worship and serve. The God who made the universe and everything in it for his own pleasure and who rightly receives, even requires, undivided and undiluted worship from the whole universe and everything in it. We need to see what it's like to be in the presence of God and this is where we find out. We need to reflect on, on all of that 
what that means. We need to reflect on it a bit before we move on to see the actions that follow. What He's done for us, how He's loved us and rescued us and reconciled us to Himself. We need to sit here for a while first. We need to ponder the treasure that we've inherited in our salvation. Namely, this very God. The God who has made us and claimed us as His own. He is our inheritance in the gospel. And we need to ponder that. Even before we turn our attention to that salvation itself that His eternal Son made available to us. That's the next chapter. And as we soak in this text, as we reflect on it, as we ponder it, we need to ask ourselves two questions, and we're going to finish with these two questions this week and next. We need to ask ourselves, do we really believe, do we really believe that this scene, this scene in Revelation 4, is actually happening right now? That this is the God we serve. And the important part there isn't the time reference that it's happening right now. Do we believe it's true? Do we believe it's happening? Do we believe this is a right and accurate description of our God? And that we join in with this worship each and every Sunday as we gather here for corporate worship. And then we continue in it even further as we go forth into this world empowered by this gathering and guided by what we do here. Our whole lives being aimed in that direction, the direction of Revelation 4, for all eternity, by His grace, both here and now, and eternally future. Do we believe that? Do we really believe this is true? That's question number one. And then we need to ask a second question. Again, we'll ask these same ones next Sunday because they're the questions that are pressed upon us by this amazing portion of Scripture. We need to ask ourselves a second question. Do our lives show that we really believe this? If we really believe this, our lives are different. Is it evident that we believe that what Revelation 4 says is true? Does it show? My friends, spend your week in Revelation 4. Can I request that of us as a body of believers, to spend our week in Revelation 4? Asking God by His Spirit to draw you into this scene? You're welcome here, you know, in this scene. I can't believe the unity of uh, our welcome this morning and our conclusion to the message. Nick and I didn't confer on this, but he affirmed to you your welcome by God's grace into relationship with him, into his holy, holy, holy presence. And we're finishing with that same emphasis. You're welcome here. Through the work of Christ, you're welcome. It's your inheritance in Him, to belong here. 
and your heavenly Father, the one who is seated on the throne, your Father and mine. Ask him to enable your life to reveal your truest identity. And to draw people toward it for his glory. Ask him to make your life a living hymn that proclaims exactly what we read in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Spend the week in Revelation 4. Then on Friday or maybe Saturday, add in Revelation 5 to ready your heart for next Sunday and for the action that's in this scene. Pray with me now. And as we pray, musicians can return to the front and communion servers, please join me. Heavenly Father, if anything is evident to us today, it is that we are out of our depth. That what we have read here, what we have studied here, helpful though it is by your enabling of John to write it in language that we can appreciate a bit, it is beyond us. And yet, Father, it is part of your revealed word. It's what you have intended us to study. It plays such a profound role in this compelling book that we just ask with no particular outcome in mind because, in all honesty, we can't envision that. We can't imagine it. We just ask you to help us understand Revelation 4 and our place in it. We pray that the truths that are reflected here would take hold of our hearts and then take root in our beings and grow into the full flower of a worshipful, obedient, enduring life as you have intended them to be. We just ask, Lord God, and we pray that you would glorify yourself in the answer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.